Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. If you have a Bible, the, uh, the notes from the bulletin. This morning we will uh, begin our third look at a central theme in Luke. It will be the penultimate. Next week should be our last time going over major themes in Luke. Next week we'll look at Luke's presentation of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. This week, we will look at another major theme in Luke's gospel, the great reversal. If you're new here, we've just finished a three and a half year study of Luke. And before moving on to uh, our next section of the Bible, I wanted to do some review, some looking at the forest after spending so many weeks looking at the trees. And so we've seen the theme of the centrality of God's word, Jesus' use of scripture, We've seen the theme of Jesus' meals with sinners. This morning, we will look at the great reversal. This is a theme common throughout Scripture itself, and yet presented centerfold in Luke's gospel. And that is the theme of God casting down the high and raising up the low. Um, If you've ever enjoyed a story of the underdog, uh, this shows up in movies, it shows up in literature, and it's all throughout the Scripture story. Um, Again and again, God finding the lowly, God finding the humble, God finding the broken, God exalting them, God casting down Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or whomever, this theme again and again and again shows up, and it shows up most centrally in the incarnation of our Lord. So this is actually one of the Proverbs that our Lord gives twice in Luke's gospel. Um, In Luke 14, 11 and 18, 14, they're nearly word for word, the The quotation here at the top of the insert is actually from 1814. Jesus puts it this way. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. This shows up um, initially in Luke's gospel in chapter 1. That's where I had you turn. In Mary's prayer, what's called the Magnificat, its Latin title, she praises God for looking upon her humble estate and giving this grand honor of bearing the Messiah, and borrowing heavily from Hannah's prayer in in 1 Samuel 2, she says this in verses 52 to 53. This is highlighting this motif of the great reversal. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And to show you again that this is a central theme, not just in Luke, but in Scripture, let me read Hannah's prayer. If you remember, Hannah was the mother of Samuel. She was childless, and she prayed the Lord to open her womb to give her a child. The Lord graciously responded. And chapter 2 of 1 Samuel includes her prayer, and it it, it focuses solely on this reversal motif. You also see some of the similarities with Mary's prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord 
kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So all throughout scripture, our God has revealed that he is a God who delights to upset things, to to reverse things, to take those who are proud, those who are mighty, would seem that way, cast them down, and to exalt, to raise up, to give glory and honor to the humble. Which then means we need to define our terms. Because this is both good news and terrifying news. If we take our Lord at face value, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, the one who humbles himself will be exalted, then we have in that very maxim the best possible news and the most terrifying and terrible news. Good news if you're humble. Good news if you have humbled yourself. And bad news if you are proud. Um, Jesus' proverb doesn't directly quote any Old Testament passage, but it's in keeping with a theme throughout Scripture again. I'll read a few Proverbs to you. Proverbs 15:33: The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. Humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So what I want to do before moving through this is defining our terms. What, what is humility? I'm going to look at the positive virtue. And in one sense, you can define humility and pride by each other. But what is humility? And I have to be careful with this definition. This may not be as simple as you might think. What is humility? Because we can have some wrong ideas of humility. Humility is not a pretty girl thinking she's ugly. Um, We have to get a definition of humility that can encompass our Lord. As Matthew tells us, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So we need a definition of humility that can encompass the Lord of glory himself. So here's the best definition I could come up with just for working purposes for this morning. Humility is mindfulness of one's own position seen in right relationship to God. Mindfulness, being aware of, having it on your mind, not losing sight of, that's more mindfulness, being aware, being conscious of your position relative to God. Who am I in relationship to God? Understanding that, having that in my mind is a mindset of humility. So in that sense, our Lord could know who he is, but also know in relationship to his father, the mission the father gave him. And so he could be humble. I want to also focus on two outflows of humility. Um, One, this then leads, it seeks the exaltation that God alone gives. Again and again in scripture, what we see is not that some people want glory and others don't, The Bible assumes all of us are seeking glory, just as the Bible assumes all of us are seeking joy and pleasure. The question is not that there are some who seek glory and some who don't. Rather, there are those who seek the glory that God gives, 
And there are those who seek the glory that man can give. They seek to take glory. And so again and again, we see that the the fear of man brings a snare. Why does Saul make a statue? He says he feared the people. He cared more about what the people thought of him, whether they thought he was good, whether they would give him praise and glory than what God thought. It's pride. Um, So Jesus will tell us to seek not the glory that comes from man, the glory that comes from the Father. It's seeking to hear, well done, faithful servant. That's humility. Keeping your eye on God and his pleasure. Seeking the glory that God gives rather than seeking the glory that man gives or seeking the glory even worse that you could try to take or muscle in and receive. The second thing I think that's helpful to notice about humility is it surrenders its rights to the service of God. If you want to think of what the opposite of humility is a sense of entitlement, especially amongst us. If, if you're focused on what is owed you, if everywhere you go, if the view is people owe you things, you're owed things and they better pay, or you're going to get angry, that's a demonstration of pride. If your focus is on your rights, your privileges, what is owed to you, what people must give you, and this can show up in subtle ways. I think it's wrong to think of pride simply as that person who walks around with their nose up in the air, muscling people out of the way. Pride, one of the reasons it is so pernicious, it, is, it can show up in so many ways. I'm going to read this morning two different quotes from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I, Lewis's chapter on pride is amazing. It is convicting. I, I commend it to you. But I want you to hear a quote from him on, on pride. Why, why it's so wicked, why humility is so important, and why God might make this great reversal of casting down the proud and exalting the humble, so central to the story of the Bible. Lewis says this, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself this, how much do I dislike it when I see it in others? How much do I dislike it when people snub me, refuse to notice me, or shove their oar in, or patronize me, or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. So it's a brilliant insight. So pride can show up in all sorts of ways. For myself, um, I, I tend to think of myself as somewhat clever, somewhat intelligent. And so if I get the sense that Someone thinks they're pulling one over me. Someone's trying to manipulate me. Someone's trying to take advantage of me. My pride gets angry at that. Primarily because they thought they could get that past me. Me of all people. So pride can show up in a thousand and one ways. It is, it is utterly pernicious. So humility then, just back to our definition, is mindfulness of one's own position seen in right relationship to God. And it seeks the exaltation that God alone gives and it surrenders its rights to the service of God. So Jesus is humble because he accepts God's plan and mission for him of service and walking around on earth instead of being consumed by what is owed him and what others must give to him and his rights, he becomes a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. Because that was the Father's will and plan for him. But ultimately we know 
He did this, according to Hebrews, because he sought the glory that the Father would give him. For he endured the shame of the cross for the glory set before him. So that's how I'm trying to fit this definition of, of humility that fits Jesus into its framework as well as us. And so we're going to look at this in three points as it relates to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. First, Jesus' incarnation. Jesus' incarnation. I just want to suggest to you that before Jesus teaches on humility, he models it. He models it extremely well. And this great reversal is modeled in our Lord's birth. So at the beginning of Luke's gospel, it's not as clear, but certainly by the time you get to the midpoint, Luke has established Jesus' identity. He has established he is the Lord of glory. He is the Son of God. He has established that he is the Holy One of God. And so Jesus' birth then is all the more striking. Turn to chapter 2. You know this passage. We read of the Christmas. But think of the contrast. He'll start by setting the date with a human, powerful figure, Caesar Augustus. In contrast to this great earthly king, another king will be born in very different circumstances. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Canarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So Caesar Augustus flexes his power. This man is so mighty, so great, that he can tell people, and they obey thousands of miles away from him, to get up, to, to stop what they're doing, to go travel to the city of their birth, because he wants to take a census. This man is powerful. He gives an order, the world obeys. And so Joseph rises and goes to the city of David. Ironically here, in the exercise of his power and the flexing of his muscles, he accomplishes God's sovereign will. He went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So here we have a human king, powerful, mighty, and here is God's king, born in a stable. This is the one who will cast down the God of this world. This is the one who will redeem his people. And he comes not in pomp and in grandeur and in glory and with a entourage. He's meek, Mild, born in a manger. I mean, just, just think of the transition. No, no distance you can imagine, whether it be yourself shrinking down and becoming a microbe and going and living among germs. or no, no, no contrast you can imagine will be sufficient to consider Jesus leaving the glory and the privilege he had with the Father and coming down to dwell amongst us. In the, in the birth of our Lord, we see humility and that God is going to undo what is wrong in this world. God is going to defeat his enemies through weakness, through this child's birth. Um, turn to chapter 2, 24. We know that Jesus was born to a poor family for we are told that Joseph and Mary when they go up to give the sacrifice appropriate for his birth, give the poor sacrifice in 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 the law, it says, here's what the sacrifice is supposed to be. If you're poor, you can give um, 
a turtle dove, a pair of turtle doves in verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So the Lord of glory is born to a poor couple in a poor country under the thumb of Rome in the Middle East. Um, Jesus' birth demonstrates grand and great humility, and, and it sets up again this reversal. How auspicious that this is the one who will save God's people. This is the one to whom every ruler and every king and every knee will bow and give homage is born in such humility. He doesn't demand his rights. He follows his father's plan. He surrenders his rights in the service of God and he seeks not the glory of man but the glory that God alone gives. Next we see Jesus' humility demonstrated in his life. First his birth Secondly, his life. Jesus, while making shockingly grandiose claims about who he is, because again, humility is not pretending you're something you're not. Humility is not a smart person saying they're dumb. Humility is not a, a good baseball player pretending they're bad. Humility is mindfulness of one's own position seen in right relationship to God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. If Jesus didn't communicate that out of mock modesty, then we'd all be lost. It's the most loving thing he can do to announce who he is. It's the most loving thing he can do to set God's conditions and terms for forgiveness out plainly. And yet we see tremendous humility in our Lord. Um, Turn to chapter 4. I'll just highlight a couple points in his earthly ministry. Jesus is not acting like someone concerned with their rights. Remember I said pride is entitlement. You owe me. What do we see? Jesus pouring himself out again and again and again and again and again for others. Look at 440. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. So here's Jesus at the end of a long day crowds bringing in every single one they brought to him. He made time for, he healed, he, he gave himself to the, to the poor. Or a little further, go to chapter 6. Jesus picks his ambassadors, he picks his disciples, and does he pick wise, noble, powerful men, the celebrities of his day who have influence? He picks fishermen, a tax collector, and if you read through the names of these men, he, he picks unimpressive people and he lives with them and he spends his life for the next three years with these men. He, he, he's not too proud and too high and mighty to hang out with fishermen, tax collectors, and the like. And probably the most striking example of Jesus' humility in um, Luke's gospel as it relates to his interaction with other people is seen in the story of the sinful woman who comes and washes his feet with her hair. And that's the very issue that's, that's being uh, addressed here. Um, let's just go to chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, anointing them with, the, with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If you're worried about contaminating yourself, if you're worried about being contaminated, if, if you're proud, you don't let this woman, who is almost certainly either a prostitute or worse, an adulteress, um, you don't let her weep and touch and kiss and wipe your feet. But Jesus is not too high and mighty for that. He lets her do this. He speaks tenderly to her. And again and again in the Luke's gospel, Jesus is welcoming the poor, the lowly. In contrast to the pride of the Pharisees, they're too good to have dealings with these people. Our Lord in his humility welcomes them. And we looked at that two weeks ago. And we see that in his life. And supremely, we see our Lord's humility in his death. Turn to chapter 22 of Luke. Our Lord models humility perfectly. Luke 22. Now, ironically, as Jesus is preparing to die, is he worried about what's due him? No, he's pouring himself out. He's going to give up his life for us. The disciples, in contrast, which only highlights this even greater, begin to argue about who's the greatest. And as our Lord goes out into the garden in humility, recognizing his dependence on God for help and praying, they fall asleep. And he prays this in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There is the supreme act of humility. And he could have said, I don't deserve your wrath. I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve to be crucified. And I don't, and clearly he doesn't want to if there's any other way around it. He could, he could flex his rights. I, I don't want to be shamed publicly. I don't want to be jeered at. And so I won't. No, he is mindful of his own position in relationship to God. He is the son of the father. He always does what pleases the father. The father has a task for him, a mission for him. He's mindful of that. And he is seeking the glory that comes from his father, not the glory that comes from man. If he's seeking the glory that comes from man, he's not going to get it in the next few hours. They're going to mock at him. They're going to spit upon him. They're going to scoff at him. And so he surrenders his rights to the service of God. So that's how I think my definition of humility um, works for our Lord. And, and he does exactly that. And even as he is nailed to a tree, being jeered at, what does he pray in verse 34? Father, avenge me. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he guides the thief on the cross into glory at the last moment, again, focusing on others. Pouring himself out to the last. And ultimately, we see in uh, verse uh, 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, Our Lord models humility. Turn to Philippians 2. Even though Luke's gospel doesn't name this humility, I think it's self-evidently humility, but but Paul will, will draw these things together in Philippians 2 quite clearly so that we make no mistake that we are looking at a supreme act of humility here. Philippians 2, 
Pick it up in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he points us to the example of Christ for this um, command. He says, don't be proud, be humble, be humble by looking after other people's interests. Don't just be concerned with yourself, which gets that notion of, I'm not just concerned fundamentally with what's mine and what's owed me. I'm concerned with others and their interests. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clutched or held on to. We can so often be slow to give up our rights and cling to them and demand them. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, because God exalts the humble. Why was Jesus highly exalted, according to this passage? Precisely because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there, we're told to be humble and not proud and imitate our Lord who was glorified by his Father precisely because of his humble, suffering obedience. So our Lord did indeed perfectly model humility. And it was through a humbled, crucified Messiah that his Father was pleased to destroy his foes, redeem his people. So next, I want to turn to Jesus' teaching. We've seen Jesus' incarnation, now Jesus' teaching. Jesus had, in Luke's gospel, a lot to say about humility. I turn to chapter 6. And chapter 6 in Luke is the only complete, full-length sermon of Jesus. We have many shorter teachings, but in Luke 6, we get an extended teaching of Jesus' ethic. Very similar to what Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount. Here, the Sermon on the Plain. And just look at the Beatitudes that begin this. Jesus commends humility and warns against pride. Verse 20, he lifted his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others do to you, do so to them. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But if you do good to those, uh, and if, no, sorry, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that for you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So even as Jesus calls on us to surrender our rights, to suffer mistreatment, to humble ourselves, he does it ultimately because there is a greater reward he promises. Like I said, everyone's seeking glory and honor and reward. It's just where we're looking to it, where we're expecting to find it. So Jesus says, humble yourself, and great will be your reward. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And again, we're called, in so doing, we model our Father's character. So Jesus is plain in his demands of humility, sacrificial, suffering, Loving of enemies, turning the other cheek. All of this requires humility because the part of me that doesn't want to turn the other cheek is the part of me that wants to say, how dare you? Do you know who I am? How dare you do that to me? It requires humility to, to obey Jesus' commands. It requires an eye that looks to God's pleasure and God's reward and God's commands. That's the only way these commands can be obeyed. Turn to chapter 7. Another aspect of Jesus' teaching on humility and pride is seen in his teaching on the very nature of faith itself. Now, Luke, I think, positions the story of the centurion with the sick servant immediately after this, um, this sermon of Jesus to illustrate the point. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion, this is a Roman and almost certainly a Gentile, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders and Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, and here's the big contrast, if you remember from when we looked at this, the, delega- the first delegation that are just simply sent to make the request, they, they interpret him and view him as worthy. And that's their appeal to Jesus. He is worthy to have you come and do this. And, and there's a subtle notion and worthy of, of obligation. It is owed to him. It is fitting. You ought to go. He deserves you to go to his home, right? And the contrast is seen hugely in the second delegation that he sends, that actually he puts the words in their mouth. He tells them what to say. And Jesus went with them, verse 6, and when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, this guy's a big deal. He's wealthy enough to help build their synagogue. He's the leader of a 100 Roman soldiers. Well thought of by the Jews, which is no easy task when you're a Gentile. What's his confession? Not do this, it's owed to me, do this, it's fitting. I am not worthy. It's humility. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Why didn't he go to Jesus? Is it because he's lazy? No, he, he doesn't presume that this great teacher has time for him. He wouldn't want to waste his time like that. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And 
My servant do this and he does this. So he understands himself. What we're seeing is himself in right relationship to Jesus. How does he relate to Jesus? He is far, 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 far down the totem pole. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, and what might we expect him to say? I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such. And we might expect humility. No, what, what do we see? I tell you that even in Israel, I have not found such faith. So Jesus implicitly links faith and humility. That's interesting. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus insists that if you're proud, you cannot come to know him savingly. How can you believe in me when you seek and receive the glory that comes from man and not the glory that comes from the Father, he says in John 5. But here, we see a component of faith, a necessary component of faith is humility. And I think if you start to think that through, it makes sense. Because if we're going to believe the Gospel, if we're going to come to the Lord, we need to accept his definition of who we are. Our hearts want to tell us we're important. We're decent sort of chaps. We're, we try our best. We're not that bad. We like people who affirm that narrative in us. God says, you deserve death and hell and judgment. We don't like that. We have to humble ourselves. And we have this low picture of who God is. And faith involves seeing God for who he is. And that will necessarily humble us. So a necessary element of saving faith is understanding ourselves in relationship to who God is. And another element is recognizing that the glory that he gives is far superior to any glory we could receive from man. We can't come to God savingly while we still hunger and thirst and yearn for the glory that comes from man. That's our God in that case. Well, what are we worshiping? Am I worshiping what you think of me, what others think of me? Or do I care most what God thinks of me? And will I accept his um, description and view of me? Um, so the very nature of faith demonstrates this. Um, and then his demands of all and any would-be disciples emphasizes this notion of humility. He is going to exalt those who will humble themselves. He will cast down those who exalt themselves. He demands of anyone who would follow him that they humble themselves. And so, just after telling them that he is their Messiah, will go and suffer on the cross. In chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Which is a dramatic reversal of what they expected of their Messiah. The Messiah should come and destroy his enemies and set up a kingdom and receive honor and glory and laud and praise. Yes, eventually. But first, that will be reversed as he is spit upon, killed, mocked. There's a cross before the crown, and likewise his disciples follow that same pattern. And He immediately goes on in verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And again, this isn't an end of itself. It's not sadism. This is seeking a greater reward, a greater glory. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And the implicit argument is you don't want to ultimately lose your life, do you? 
then don't seek saving it in this life. The way that makes sense is there's a life after this. And the life after this lasts a whole lot longer than this life. You should be concerned about saving your life in the world after this. And that is the basis on why you'll be willing to pour it out in this life. But the whole argument hinges on you don't want to lose eternal life, do you? It's self-interest. There's, there's no implicit just self-denial for the sake of self-denial. Whoever loses his life, whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And the assumption of the argument is, and you want real, true, lasting profit, don't you? It's a whole argument. Don't give up lasting treasure for monopoly money when you can have real lasting treasure. You see that also in his demands of disciples later in chapter 14. Um, but I want to I turn to our, our next point, his warnings to the proud and the self-righteous. And not only does he commend humility to his disciples, but he warns against the vice of pride. Um, let's go to chapter 12. In verse 43, this is one of the charges he drops at the feet of the Pharisees and the scribes. And there's a lot wrong with them, but don't miss this one. Chapter 12, in verse... Um, it's, not, it's not chapter 12, is it? I'm off. Or is it? 12.43 is what I got written down. No, it's right there. Sorry. Um... No, it's not 12. Give me one second. It is... Eleven. I'm chapter ahead. Go back. I'm sorry. Yes, 11.43. There we go. I apologize. 11.43. Woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you. One of the problems of the Pharisees is they love the glory that comes from man. They're not seeking the glory that comes from God. They, they want the seats of honor. Now turn to 14. We see them playing this sort of game of musical chairs. And it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic Look at twelve. Look at fourteen seven. This will lead to Jesus' first clear statement of that proverb that we have at the top of our notes. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the place of honor. So he's watching this dinner party, and what's happening is everyone who's invited is trying to figure out where they sit. And this is only a problem if if you're looking for the greatest glory, because otherwise you just take what he's going to say as his advice, sit at the bottom of the table. So the logic is, I, I don't want to give up anything that's due me. I don't want to give up any glory and honor that I could have. And yet, if I overestimate and someone more important than me comes in, I'll be ashamed in front of people. So you got to do the mental math of who's up and who's down and who's got the most cred and who's got the most honor and glory. And it's kind of nerve-wracking, and they're just nervously trying to figure out where they're going to sit. And he tells them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor. Don't take honor for yourself. 
lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, the the implicit reasoning of Jesus is you want real honor. Don't, Don't grab honor. Honor can only be given. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Try to take honor for yourself, you'll, you'll be pushed down. You'll be pushed down. Turn to chapter 18. Um, this is, again, part of his explicit teaching in verse 9. This is the second time, by the way, where Jesus quotes this exact principle. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt and entrusting themselves to the righteous, they are not seeing themselves rightly in relationship to God. And by treating others with contempt, they are concerned with what is due them. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, and adulterers. Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then we see the perfect picture of this, as Jesus is not too good for children to come to him. The disciples think that's a waste of his time. He says, let the children come to me. And then the rich young ruler loves his possessions too much, and he goes away. Jesus welcomes babies, but he turns away the rich young ruler. Let me read my second quote from Lewis. This raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? And I'm Thinking of this Pharisee in this parable. I am afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny's worth of imaginary humility to him to get a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow men. Luckily, we have a test, however. Whenever we find ourselves in our religious life and it's making us feel that we are good or above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted upon not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget yourself entirely or see yourself as small and dirty. It is far better to forget about yourself. You get that, that we... (laughs) We can make a phantom God who we will say how humble we are in the presence of, but if all he does is pat us in the back and tell us what great chaps we are, we're worshiping a phantom. This is one of the reasons why the self-esteem gospel is so damaging. 
If, if the gospel is how much God values you, and that's it, out of distortion from everything else, you'll walk away thinking, Jesus wouldn't die for trash now, would he? I must be pretty important. Look how much it costs to redeem me. You will be nearly impossible to save from that context. Because God only exalts the humble. What does he do to the proud? He casts them down. So when we see this in Jesus' warnings to the self-righteous, he warns of religious pride. Um, God will reverse and flip things upside down. The final place I want to see this, um, point three, is in Jesus' proclamation. We've seen it in Jesus' incarnation. We've seen it in his teaching, now in his proclamation. What I mean here is in the gospel, the very going out of the gospel is evidence of this further reversal why do I say that? Well, because Israel, here's your blank, Israel was in the position of greatest privilege. They have the scriptures. They have the promises. They have the prophets. They have the fathers. To them belong uh, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, the patriarchs. Um, Paul lists Israel's privilege in Romans 9 and other places. And yet Israel would not humble itself. What offended Jesus? The first attempt to kill Jesus occurred in his hometown when he suggested to those from Nazareth that spiritually speaking, they were blind, poor, naked, and they needed freedom. And when they understood what he was saying, they tried to murder him. Because they would not recognize themselves in that sense. That's why the preparation for Jesus was a baptism of repentance, calling on the Israelites to come out and recognize your uncleanness. Welcome not, recognize you need a bath from your filth. Israel would not humble itself and so would be humbled. And that's again another major thing, theme in, in, in the gospel. Turn to chapter 21. God is going to push down the nation for a time. He will humble them. How much so? So much so that he invites people like you and me to come. Paul makes this point clear in Romans 11. We don't have time to go there, but Jesus in Luke, um, Luke chapter 21 speaks of this humbling of Israel. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the side of the city depart. Let those who are out in the country um, let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of wrath to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. There will be great distress upon the earth and great wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The gospel going out to all the nations, which is your next point, repentance for the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all nations, is done as an act of humbling Israel. Paul makes this explicit point in, in Romans 11. Let me just read this to you. Um, now I am speaking to you Gentiles in so much as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And Paul's argument is that is, is a way of humbling Israel. The, the blessings promised to them are being given to uncircumcised Gentiles like you and me, and it's meant to provoke them to jealousy. 
And again, the gospel going to us is not, again, a declaration of our worth and value. In fact, he warns against concluding exactly that. He, he warns them. If some of the branches are broken off, and although you will wild off olive shoot or grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are a member, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They're broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand firm through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's the right conclusion. How seriously does God take casting down the proud? He set aside his people and he let us in. Not as a declaration of our worth, but as a demonstration that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so wherever Gentiles will humble themselves, wherever Gentiles will, will bow the knee to Christ, recognize their need of forgiveness, they're welcomed in. And those who are proud are cast out. See, point C, the gospel itself promises to humble the exalted and to exalt the humble. The gospel promises to humble the exalted and to exalt the humble. I mean, this is, this is the message of the gospel, right? Um, you first need to accept God's testimony of who you are. And we tell ourselves we're good people. We tell ourselves that we're nice people. We're certainly as nice as the next guy. And God says, no, no, your, your best deeds are like medical waste. Well, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart are only evil continually. And how bad is it? Is that big of a deal? No, we need to accept his, his sentence on sin. We need to stop making excuses. We, we don't make excuses for other people, but you know, other people tell lies. I might stretch the truth. No, we, we need to accept his sentence, his judgment, his verdict on us and in, in relationship to him. And only from that position which is a humbling position. I have no escape. I have no excuse. I have no recourse. I have no good deeds that I can do. Only from that position can we reach out in faith and trust in the one who died for us, who paid our debt for us. Only from that humbled position can we plead mercy. As long as we're pleading obligation, give me what is due, the only thing you and I are due is hell. And so the law silences our objections. It humbles us. The gospel promises that those who are too proud, too wise, will be cast down. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I'm going to call the worship team up for a closing song. We sang it earlier, but I thought it was perfect for, the, for this, this, this message. Um, God will forgive. God will exalt. God will bless any of you will humble yourself in his sight. Um, David, David said it rightly um, hundreds of years before our Lord was born. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These he will not despise.